Welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm John Brannigan, the series editor. The following lecture in the series Reconceiving the British Isles is given by Dr. Alice Entwistle, Principal Lecturer at University of Glamorgan. Neither here nor there, dynamism, deixis, and cultural positioning in some contemporary poetry. The cultural critic Lothar Feetz has explained how the notion of place, once a rhetorically useful point of reference in an argument, came to serve the naturistic separation of a regional or peripheral cultural consciousness from its more universal centre. As Feetz's co-editor Hans-Werner Ludwig rehearses elsewhere in the same anthology, The centre-periphery paradigm has exercised a powerful influence over British and Irish critical interest in poetries of place from at least the time of Matthew Arnold and perhaps particularly in the later decades of the 20th century. But how much use is this, in some ways definitively dialectical paradigm, to a poem like Bernard O'Donoghue's Westering Home? Though you'd be pressed to say exactly where it first sets in, Driving west through Wales, things start to feel like Ireland. It can't be the chapels with their clear grey windows, or the buzzards menacing the scooped valleys. In April, have the blurred blackthorn hedges something to do with it? Or possibly the motorway, which seems to lose its nerve mile by mile. The houses up to a point with the masoned gables, each upper window a raised eyebrow. More, though, than all of this, it's the architecture of the spirit, the old, thin ache you thought that you'd forgotten. More smoke, admittedly, than flame, less tears than rain, and the whole business, neither here nor there, and therefore home. This shrewd text discerns a kind of cultural commonality between Wales and Ireland, not so much in the features of the rural landscape through which it westers, the manifestly Welsh chapels and buzzards, as in the uncertainties possibly ascribed to the faltering motorway, the sceptically raised eyebrows, punningly up to a point, of the houses. And then there is the faintly political gesture at some kind of scant, shared spirit, that old, thin ache. The nuances combine in those cryptic afterthought-like last lines, and the whole business neither here nor there, and therefore home. It is, of course, not at all clear what business is neither here nor there. The parallels between Wales and Ireland, the attention we have been asked to pay them, or, perhaps the overriding impression, the very nature of the places themselves. At the same time, that shrug, neither here nor there, is transformed by the poem's closing phrase. Famously, the Scottish poet-critic Robert Crawford identifies the theme of home as perhaps the major theme of 20th century poetry in the English-speaking world. In the light of Crawford's observation, I am struck by the way in which O'Donoghue's final words at once undermine, and are undermined by, the sense of inconsequentiality by which they are framed. Here, the conventionally comforting idea of home is paradoxically both located and refused in ambiguity 
in a phrase which self-consciously undoes any sense not simply of its position, but of its very positionability. Interestingly, Westering Holmes' last line supplies the title of O'Donoghue's 1999 collection, Here and There. For me, the equivocation of this carefully suggestive choice of phrase contrives that Wales and Ireland together and separately inscribe a state of not just topographical, but cultural and, at the close of the 20th century, amid the realities of devolution, political in-betweenness. Indeed, the poem's deliberate seeming interest in such uncertainties seems to me to trouble the oppositional relationship at the heart of the centre-periphery dialectic which Feats and Ludwig, navigating the outer reaches of the cultural life of the so-called British Isles, must unpick. To cognitive linguists, the prepositions here and there have a distinct and definitive function. They mark or frame the operation of spatial or place deixis, a term which signifies the capacity of language to point and position, to specify location. As we've seen, O'Donoghue deploys the same signifiers in precisely the opposite way. His phrasing destabilises to the point of denying the reassuringly referential deictic function which markers, like here and there, technically normally carry. He is not the only poet writing in Ireland and Wales to use these signifiers in this counterintuitive way. A number of regionally identified poets seem to me to be urging us to sidestep, or at least think outside, the increasingly exhausted seeming circularity of the periphery centre model. I'd like to see critical attention shift, at least partly in response to the ambiguous use which writers like O'Donoghue make of spatial deixis, to the less deterministic, more broadly relational and arguably, in our 21st century moment, more broadly productive issue of cultural positioning in what some have chosen, perhaps contentiously, to call the Atlantic archipelago. Critics have been slow to consider the impact of deixis on the literary text. Most treatments of literary deixis focus on narrative prose and aspects of narratology. Contrastingly few consider poetic deixis in any depth, and fewer still the multiple ways in which a poem's deictic activity might signify beyond the essentially mechanical intrigues of the deictic shifts they search. Yet, as cognitive linguists accept, by definition, textual deixis necessarily registers the cultural-political contexts out of which it emerges. As Keith Green explains, if deictic terms are, as a rule, egocentric, they are also referential. Reference always takes place within a subjective frame. Deictic reference is thus partly tied to context and partly creates that context. Elsewhere, Peter Stockwell notes that since occurrences of deictic expressions are dependent on context, reading a literary text involves a process of context creation in order to follow the anchor points of those expressions. These remarks endorse Giza Rao helpfully defining deixis as a mechanism of relating. This relational function is chiefly why, when read back into their historical, geographical or cultural contexts, the semantic features of deixis can come to inflect the construction of author, speaker, reader, even text. Significantly, the cultural critic Susan Friedman figures identity as a positionality, a location, a standpoint, an intersection. 
by extension, as she explains, each of her cognate terms depends on a point of reference. As that point moves, so do the contours of identity. So what happens to identity when that point of reference, for cognitive linguists, its deictic origo, dissolves? When the subject's positionality or location is left in abeyance, as O'Donoghue ensures, neither here nor there. And why might poets like Kieran Carson and younger writers like Catherine Walsh and Zoe Schoolding, writing out of their respective Irish and Welsh cultural historical contexts, like O'Donoghue, deploy the markers of spatial deixis to complicate rather than clarify position? I'm going to start by exploring the cultural-political potential of this suggestive textual habit before examining how and why it might be relevant to the shaping cultural aesthetics of 21st century Ireland and Wales. As Paul Worth has noted, the markers of Deixis work at least partly through their capacity to call up an entity and keep it in mind. This capacity has been shrewdly exploited by the Northern Irish poet Kieran Carson, writing out of the entrenched cultural divisions of his native Belfast. Carson's award-winning work, Belfast Confetti, tirelessly searches the risks and exigencies of self-positioning amid the city's notoriously freighted and fractured street plan. Published a decade before O'Donoghue's poem, whenever and wherever Carson's buoyantly mobile text points, it is with astute, if casual-seeming, imprecision. Take the moment when, having been ambushed on a bike ride through the city, the speaker of question time, is interrogated by a group of unidentified captors. The incident is recollected by the victim in the deictically confusing present historic tense. He says, I am this map which they examine, a map which no longer refers to the present world, but to a history, these vanished streets, a map which is this moment, this interrogation, my replies. Note how the implied here of this map, this moment, and the implied there of history, the vanished streets, merge self-protectively in I, both rooted and defying placement in present and vanished worlds alike. The fragment not only projects, but mediates what Evan Boland has described as the duality to place, the place that happened and the place that happens to you while testifying to the cultural-political significance of that duality. The text's subtle cognitive shifts point us relentlessly back into the tensions of Belfast's cultural fabric, what the poet has himself wryly described as the city's patchwork of sectarian enclaves. If nothing else, those shifts help to make sense of, and are made sense of by, the inescapable context of the Troubles. Against that difficult historical but also geographical backdrop, Carson's map works both to yoke and separate self and world, the city, each trapped in yet eluding the cultural-political tensions set in motion by the encounter. As Christian Jacob notes in his magisterial study, The Sovereign Map, the map results from a double construction, that of its author, and that of its readers, a symmetrical process, a twofold construction of encoding and decoding. 
In reading, as well as being read, Carson's ambushed, apparently vulnerable eye proves crucially able to map as well as be mapped, can position as well as be positioned. Carson's choice of trope is an old favourite, the manifestly deictic, and in that powerfully metaphoric function of cartography, permits him to dismantle and critique the political divisions fissuring Belfast's cultural history from inside and outside the city at the same time. Like Carson, Zoe Schoolding has used the map to problematise and interrogate rather than fix the idea of cultural and ideological positionality. As Jacob says, any map invites reflection on the relationship of the place with the image, the place of the map and the place of real space. Shifting between place and text image, Preselli's with Brussels street map locates us simultaneously in the immediately sensual here of upland West Wales and the more remote textualised there of Europe's bilingual cosmopolitan civic centre. Up Oiropalan, under blue reach of sky, bare feet in spongy moss, I need a map to tell me where I'm not, along the Avenue de Salingrad. Squeal of a meadow pipit skimming over Rue de l'Empereur, tread softly on the streets, the sheep trails, between bird call and bleat echo, a street folds across two languages, here and there. In a text as preoccupied with dichotomy and relation as Carson's and its double and divided landscapes, the reader is persistently, provocatively situated both here and there. We are partly condemned to this paradox by the very activity of map reading. As Jacob notes, the viewer is at the same time outside the representation and enveloped by it. This is the place I occupy, whence I see, but also the space in which I see myself and where I am not. The ambiguities are further compounded by the poem's refracting of the relationship between cultural and linguistic complexity in the twinned, similarly bilingual environments of Wales and Belgium. For Schoolding, as for Irish poet critic Eamon Grennan, the simple fact of dual language becomes itself an image of possibility, the possibility of accommodation and the richness that is its consequence. Bradford born and raised in Ipswich, Schoolding came to Wales, where she has since settled near Bangor, as a young adult. Her writing has been preoccupied from the first with a linguistic and by extension cultural richness and possibility which charges Welsh as much as Irish aesthetic life. Now firmly embedded in and identifying, albeit cautiously, with her country of domicile, the politically sensitive tendencies of Schoolding's own construction of place and or locatedness are likely voiced in the perspectival overlaps of Prezelli's with Brussels street map. Speaking in interview, some years before her appointment as editor of Poetry Wales, Scalding remarked, even while you're in one location, you're simultaneously linked to many others. A preoccupation obtaining in much of her writing, the comment 
summons the cultural political geographer Doreen Massey, declaring that the global is in the local in the very process of the formation of the local. In the next breath in interviews, Scalding reveals that her own anti-essentialist attitude to the idea of location, or perhaps to the possibility of locatedness, licenses, fuels and justifies the creative and professional claims she makes as both writer and editor upon her own cultural context. She says, for me, this sense of global interconnectedness gets beyond there being an essential Wales and who it belongs to and who's allowed to write about it. In fact, as she has explained elsewhere, Scalding's creative maturation has been bound up with and nurtured by her sense of the aesthetic possibilities which Wales, in all its bilingual richness, affords her. She explains, Wales is where my writing took shape. I write in English in a bilingual country and I know that this context makes me see English as a provisional circumstance rather than something to be taken for granted. My national identity as a writer is therefore a set of negotiations rather than a fixed point within clearly defined national boundaries. Complex relationships between languages and cultures define Wales as much as Cymraeg itself does, and they define Europe too. Given these views, it perhaps shouldn't surprise that Scalding has described the process of writing itself in suggestively, antideictically dynamic terms, as a way of being deliberately in between, of moving through the contradictory space between here and there, or global and local, Welsh and English, human and non-human. Shifting us between text and context, from the aesthetic to the political, the analogy she draws between writing and mobility is not original. However, it merits attention for reminding us that spatial deixis can be unsettled for reasons which resonate beyond the geopolitical limits of place, having to do with the cultural politics of the aesthetic. In poetry, this takes us to the question of form, and today for me, the restive, scrupulous idiom of Catherine Walsh. Born in Dublin in 1964, Walsh has been publishing her uncompromising, spatially self-conscious poetry since the mid-80s, mostly with radical so-called little presses, like her own hard-pressed poetry, co-founded with Billy Mills, although her two latest collections are with Shearsman. In my view, Walsh has earned too little critical notice, even from enthusiasts of the so-called non-mainstream or innovative poetries perhaps because her work relentlessly discourages its readers from taking its hermeneutic possibilities too much for granted. In doing so, it makes for an exacting, even chastening reading experience. I want to begin with an excerpt from Idia Attara, its Irish Gaelic title loosely translating as Between Worlds. Scraping shovel on concrete. The grey leaf, the green leaf, the grey-green leaf, the greeny leaf, the grey leaf, grainy leaf, grainy leaf, grainy grey-green leaf of a tree, off a tree, of a tree, off on a pavement, off of a tree, on a pavement. And later, sound of wheels, quietly, 
What is the sound of wheels? On a grey footpath? What is the sound of a green leaf on a grainy? No, not grainy then. Start again. Here we are. There's where it is. Arguably conversing with both Beckett and Joyce, this perhaps mercilessly indeterminate-seeming fragment, flaunting its conversationality, may well, though it needn't, appear dialogic. But whether we understand it as interior monologue or as dialogue between two or perhaps more voices, we are left asking who precisely is talking, what about, why. Into what contexts are these lines, each in its separate, at times comically minute adjustments, pointing us or being pointed? By way of answer, I want to turn to one of Walsh's finest critics, Alex Davies, rightly warning that Walsh's disjunctive, disorienting poetry acknowledges language as a medium which constructs our relation to others, to objects, to ourselves. Her poetic subjects, he says, are always idea atura, caught between two worlds. I agree, self-evidently, the multiple worlds mediated by this sharply intelligent poetics orbit the central problematic of language, the meaning of its constituent parts always dependent on the negotiations which the assignation of meaning necessitates. Poised between voice and or voices, sounding at times very like a group writing exercise, between singular and plural, between writing and text, text and intertext, between partiality and completedness, my self-editing excerpt insistently invites us to consider how we might read or position it. On one hand, it conjures Grennan, averring, Talk is Irish and is community, and wherever any of us is writing, we are all trying to talk, trying, in our various ways, our personal dialects, to talk ourselves and our world into existence, into coexistence. Yet the text's dualities, in various ways as convincingly, recall John Goodby, noting Ireland's interstitial geographical position between the two most powerful Anglophone cultures and their common history of colonisation, plantation, settlement and emigration. For me, Goodby's topographic reading of Walsh's multi-dimensional work helpfully ventilates Davis's centralising of her sense of the relational potentiality of language. What gets lost in Davis's remarks is this poetic's determination to articulate itself in and through its airily cryptic forms, the spatial arrangements into which the text organises itself and demands that we negotiate as we read or map it. The equivocal final line leaves us somewhere equally productively equivocal, between the here of the we who might and might not include us and the there of an all-too-ambiguous it. In her terrific work, On Form, Angela Leighton argues that we come closest to understanding form, and specifically poetic form, when we construct it as function. She says, to be a capacity for knowing, rather than an object of knowledge, shifts attention 
to a kind of knowing which is an imaginative attitude rather than an accumulation of known things. It does not close down into an achieved interpretation, but remains open to endless permutations of meaning. Confirmingly, Walsh has herself remarked, I don't see why there should be any one definitive interpretation of anything anybody has written, or any two or three definitive explanations or interpretations. From my angle, her prizing of the proliferative potential of language as text implicitly argues the cultural-political import of the aesthetic. I can't help but read it, like Goodby, as dramatising the refusal of contemporary Irish poets to be contained by the boundaries of the island, the confines of explicitly Irish subject matter. I find Walsh's testing idiom insistently inscribing and being nuanced by its author's resolve to resist the oppressive effects of the kind of aesthetic, cultural-political positioning which menaces her. That instinct, for me, makes most satisfying sense of the spatial, formal possibilities of the fragment I've just quoted, not to say this rejoinder. Ah, well, and up yours, too, with a stop there, stop right there, here, here, there, any place, space, Stop right there, that's here, was there, was here, there, anywhere. What a load of. As these words might be taken to imply, Walsh seems inclined to understand her relationship with her own cultural context, for literary political, if not gender reasons, in terms of a predicament extending beyond questions of place and theme. Of her particular literary heritage, she contends, you are only supported if you are a part of that tradition, that same tradition which must celebrate above all else your sense of Irishness and your sense of being part of an ongoing linear tradition of Irish writers, writing out of a sense of bondage almost. From this perspective, Walsh is ruthlessly judged forensically anti-referential dismantling of aesthetic expectations obliquely repudiates the kind of literary cultural positioning to which the critical community and the academy at large, Irish or otherwise, is given. Walsh admits, the work is deliberately written to have a certain kind of ambiguity. It is not meant to be opaque. I'm simply trying to make a person aware of context or idea and after that to have them question it. I don't have any answers for any of the things I write about, but if I can make people question these things and approach them from different angles, even if by the way I write, I necessitate their approaching it in several different ways, one after the other, or simultaneously, or on different occasions in different ways, well, that's wonderful. I want to conclude by returning to Schoolding whose most recent work, published in late 2008 and disingenuously entitled From Here, replays the cultural-political power of the aesthetic from another perspective again. This slender pamphlet, juxtaposing 12 nine-line lyrics by Scalding with visual images by New York artist Simonetta Morrow, develops on Walsh's poetic and political example in both its deliberate testing of generic and formal limits and its interrogation of the too easily occluded cultural politics of authorship. <laughs>
A note at the end of the pamphlet explains, From here was an email collaboration during the summer of 2008 that began with a chance meeting one rainy afternoon during a conference and festival of psychogeography at Manchester Metropolitan University. Over the following weeks, Simonetta sent drawings from New York, I sent poems back from Bangor in North Wales, and the sequence developed as a conversation. Generated in the shared intercontinental, intercultural, virtual space of email and the internet, disturbing the aesthetic divide between text and image, from here rings the changes in a neglected tradition of female poetic collaboration in the logic of its generic authorial dynamism. To what, to whom do we look for the context by which we might interpret this text? In both cases, in both ways at once. Not only do the spare, elegant, lens-like texts and images contrast, converse, yet combine with each other in the space of the printed construct that they inhabit. Thematically and visually, images and texts alike also invite us to imagine ourselves into the notionally antithetical positions of both observer, reader and participant interlocutor, while simultaneously denying any such controlling perspective. A joint cooperative approach to creative expression radically disturbs the cultural and aesthetic status of the normally singular author, let alone that of his or her language, imaginative energy and artistic practice. An experienced collaborator, Scolding has considered the practice in depth, as is revealed in an essay entitled Disobedience, co-written with her colleague and friend the poet Ian Davidson. The account, describing and examining how their jointly authored poetic compositions come into being, views literary collaboration as as much an act of reading as it is an act of writing. On receiving a section of the poem, we each have to read it before responding. It is an act of interpretation and an act of discovery. This shared step-by-step writing practice emerges as negotiation of an unmapped space involving a continuous response to a moving and unpredictable textual landscape, they say. In From Here, the complexities of collaboration are sharpened and compounded in a technological format which firmly resists any conventionally singular or static perspective or deictic frame. As Davidson himself notes, the internet redefines relationships between space and place, changes relationship between people and places, breaks down relationships between space and time. Staging the creative possibilities enshrined in the proliferating spatiality of the internet, from here endorses Massey's description of a simultaneous multiplicity of spaces cross-cutting, intersecting, aligning with one another or existing in relationships of paradox or antagonism. The complexities Massey adumbrates are, at least in part, what prompt geographer Nigel Thrift to declare that place in this new in-between world is by definition compromised, permanently in a state of enunciation, between addresses, always deferred. Disobedience affirms, in a culture 
of simultaneous existences here and elsewhere, one is just as likely to connect one place with another as to dig down through the depths of associations in a single location. In from here, as in idia atara, the usually separate, separable distinctions between author and reader, between text and exegesis, between, if you like, various aesthetically reified versions of here and there, are collapsed implicitly in order to refuse or frustrate by dynamizing the kinds of entrenched, often gendered, cultural hierarchies perpetuated in aesthetic convention. Like Carson, and in his less politically assertive way, O'Donoghue, in refusing to point, spatially or aesthetically, such works point us towards a different or at least changing kind of cultural future by skirting, dissolving and or literally displacing the hierarchical logic of the centre-periphery dialectic which I began by describing. Their authors offer an alternative, more open-ended, open-minded understanding of place or rather emplacement in the more responsive, relativistic, always potentially dynamic terms of positioning in the historical, political and aesthetic as well as geographical connections they mine. Despite their many differences, writers like Walsh and Scalding can be found deliberately problematizing what Evan Boland once called the cartography of the poem in response to the increasingly complex demands of their contemporary cultural moment. You've been listening to Dr. Alice Entwistle's lecture, Neither Here Nor There, in this UCD ScholarCast. A transcript of this lecture is available to download at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. <laughs>